Dave and I were out walking the other day, and uh, it was a beautiful day. And we were walking side by side, and I, I didn't realize it at the time, but we were both looking in opposite directions. And I, I happened to look to the left, and I saw this massive, and I mean massive, buck. And I didn't, I didn't realize it, but there was one, another one standing right beside it. And they were the biggest bucks I have ever seen in my whole entire life. And I turned to, to tell Dave to make, to make sure he saw it. And, and I realized immediately that he didn't see it because he was looking in a different direction. His eyes were focused away from mine. And so he turned just as the bucks were running back into the forest area. But I think you saw them, didn't you? They were, they were beautiful. They were the biggest things I've ever seen. <laughs> I did. <laughs> but, but you see, he almost missed it because his eyes were not focused on what I was focusing on. And tonight, we're going to talk about a woman who almost missed what God was doing in her life because her eyes were not focused in his direction. If you have your Bibles tonight, you can open them with, with me to Ruth uh, chapter 1. I hope you bring your Bibles every week. I know that you have them on their phone, but I hope you bring your Bibles every week. And for those of you that are watching uh, on Facebook Live, I hope you join us every week live. We, we pray the germs away here, I promise you. You're not going to get sick. Um, <laughs> but Ruth chapter 1. Uh, Ruth is the eighth book of the Bible. Now, if you're having trouble finding it right now, just count eight books in. It's after what we know uh, as the Pentateuch or the, what the Jews call the Torah, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then you have uh, Joshua and Judges, and then Ruth. So if you get to 1 Samuel, it's, it's, you've gone too far, take a left, and Ruth should be the book behind it. Um, Ruth is a powerful uh, book. It's a short book. There's only 85 verses in the whole book. But I really believe that you're going to love our study of it in the next few months. So Ruth chapter 1, I'm just going to read a few verses. We're going to stay in chapter 1 for a little while. As I studied it this past week, I realized there were probably 10 sermons that I could get out of chapter 1. I promise you we won't tarry that long, but I am going to get a couple out of it. So Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Emelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, the Paphrodites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Emelik, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. Now, they took wives of the, the women of Moab. There's that word again. I want you to see how many times the word Moab is mentioned just in those few verses. That tells me it's important. Now, they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpha, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there about 10 years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died, so the woman survived her, her two sons and her husband. And that's where we're going to end tonight, just those few verses. But as I said, I want you to notice that the word Moab was used so many times just in those few short verses. Look at verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. 
Now, that's important. We don't want to go any further than that right now because with that one verse, the writer of Ruth is helping us to establish a historical context. He's giving us important information regarding the background of the book of Ruth. What do we know about the time when the judges ruled? You need to ask yourself that question. We know that it was a very dark time. We know that it lasted approximately 350 years. Do you understand that that the time of the judges was about 350 years? That's a very long time. And sometime during those 350 years, the the events that we're reading about in the book of Ruth took place. So the author is letting us know that it's important for us to understand the climate during the times that the judges ruled in order to understand the book of Ruth. Terry, how are you, darling? Good to see you. So we need to understand what was happening in the time of the judges in order to understand the book of Ruth. And so let's do that. I want you to flip back just one chap- one book back into the book of Judges and look at Judges chapter 17, verse 6. And I think, Don, we have that on the screen tonight. Judges chapter 17, And we're just going to look at verse 6. And this is going to give us some background on the book of Judges. It says in verse 6, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Flip over to Judges chapter 18, verse 1. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Judges 19, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel. Judges 21, verse 25. The last verse in the book of Judges says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then we go right into the book of Ruth, and it says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, that there was a famine in the land. Is there any wonder? You see, this was a time that there there was no recognized governing authority. There was no king. Who knows that we serve a king of kings? He is our final authority. But but in the time of the judges, there was no governing authority. There was no king. And everyone did as they saw fit. They did what was right in their own eyes. They were living like they wanted to live with total disregard to God's word. It didn't matter to them what God said. They wanted to do what they saw fit. They had taken their eyes off God and instead they were doing what was right in their own eyes. No wonder they got off course. Leslie and I were recently driving somewhere that was in an unfamiliar area and we had GPS on and it was leading us and we were doing just fine as long as we were listening to GPS. But somewhere along the line, we got chatting and, and we got sidetracked and, and GPS was off in the background, but we kind of tuned it out and Leslie had taken her eyes off of it. And at some point we realized we missed an exit and we were off course. And we could have quickly gotten lost, but Leslie put her eyes back on the GPS and we, and we corrected our course. And it's the same way for us spiritually. If we don't keep our eyes focused on Jesus and his ways, we will soon find ourselves off course and lost in life. And that's what was happening in the book of Judges. During the time of the Judges, the Israelites were caught in a vicious cycle of defeat. Don, can you put that cycle up on the screen for me? 
This was the cycle that they were in for those 350 plus years. As God's chosen people, he wanted their undivided hearts. He wants our undivided hearts. He wanted intimacy and and connection with them. He wanted them to focus on what he was focusing on in his direction. But they were living in a time when everyone did as they pleased. And they would walk in in disobedience. They would start out following God. And then they would get caught up in disobedience and sin. And without God in the center of their lives, things would get difficult because his hand of blessing had come off of them. And then they'd cry out to God for help. God would hear their prayers. And in his mercy, he would send a deliverer or a judge, raise up a judge. And things would get better. And they would start to get comfortable. And then guess what would happen? They'd start doing as they pleased again and turn their back on God and stop following him. And and that whole cycle would start all over again. It was a vicious cycle of defeat for the Israelites. And it is for us as well. We can do this very same thing. We can start out on fire for the Lord, serving him. Before we know it, we can get caught up in sin and idolatry. And we can grow complacent. And and God can send something to to maybe make us try to get our attention. And and then we cry out to him. And he hears from heaven. And and he, he blesses us again. And then we grow complacent. And the whole cycle starts all over again. You see, in the time of the judges, rather than obey the law of God, their king, the Israelites were doing what was right in their own eyes. The people had abandoned and turned away from their one true king. They had cast off restraint and were living however they wanted, doing whatever they wanted. And because everyone did as they pleased, it was a time of great rebellion and immorality. It was a time of complacency. And it was a time of indifference towards God. In their book, Talk Through the Bible, Bruce Wilkerson and Kenneth Boa write, the days when the judges governed marked a time of uh, apostasy, apathy, anarchy, idolatry, immorality, and war. Sounds a lot like the nation we're in today, doesn't it? I was convicted when I studied this passage because, it's, because so often we say we want to maintain a relationship with God, but at the same time, we're violating his commands. And it doesn't work that way. We cannot expect true intimacy, true fellowship with, with God if we insist on doing what we see fit, doing things our way. And we certainly can't expect his blessing. It's what we see in the world today, that kind of rebellion against God's ways and God's will. And I need to tell you, if it's left unchecked, it will automatically lead to lawlessness, anarchy, apostasy, apathy, idolatry, immorality, and war. You can count on it. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10 that these things that are written in the book of the, the Word of God, the things that are written in this book were written for our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. You see, the book of Ruth. And what we're going to study in the next couple weeks and and this Bible as a whole was written as an example for us to learn by. We should look at what the Israelites were doing during that time and we should learn from it. It was given to us as an example of what not to do. So let's get back to our text. It says, now it came to pass in the days when judges ruled that there was famine in the land. Everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. And against that backdrop, the story begins. And we see right out the gate that famine came to the land. 
And I'm not surprised because anywhere there's total disregard for God and his word, we should expect famine. Count on it. We will experience dry times. The next verse says, A certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Notice they went to dwell in Moab. They left Bethlehem because there was a famine in the land. Now, it's important that you know that the word Bethlehem means house of bread. It means house of provision. It was part of the promised land. It was part of the, 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 the land flowing with milk and honey, the land of abundance. It was named house of bread because wheat, barley, olives, almonds, and grapes grew plentiful in that area. But now the house of bread was in famine. And that's vital information for us to pick up from this passage. The author is giving us so much information just in this first verse. Because you see, in Bible times, famine was believed to be God's judgment. But rather than look at it as judgment and make some changes in in their life, uh, the Israelites just continued to do what they saw fit. And Amalek took his family and bolted to Moab where they thought they could find relief. Isn't it interesting how we run after anything that we think will bring relief? Now, we're hard on Amalek because here's the reality. I'm sure famine in the land, they viewed this as an emergency. Their two sons, Malon and Chilean, do you know what their names mean? Weakness and sickness. And so I'm not surprised they die later in the story because we've already, it's, we've already been set up to know that. They were weak and they were sickly. And so that's important because now I'm sure Amalek's looking at this saying, I have sons who are weak and sickly and now they're in a famine. I've got to get them food. Isn't it interesting what we do when we take things into our own hands, when we don't trust God with our life? I have no doubt it was a hard time, that it was a dry season. Uh, remember, this was before the days of grocery stores and Twinkies that last forever on the shelf. <laughs> famine meant famine. I'm sure they were driven by anxiety and fear. But see, God, I believe with all of my heart because we have all these scriptures that say that God says, if you obey me, I will bless you and I'll bless your crops and I'll bless your land and I'll bless your offspring. And then he tells us, but if you disobey me, I'll dry up your crops. And I won't bless your land. And I'll bring famine. God says that. He says that they would have been familiar with that scripture. And so here they are in the middle of a famine. And I want them to say, wait a second. There's famine. God has removed his hand. Let's get back into his place of blessing. Let's repent. Let's turn back to him. Let's give up that cycle of defeat. Let's do what he says. Let's redirect our vision towards him. I want them to do that. But they don't. They don't. God, I believe, sent that famine uh, to get them to turn to him. And, and, And instead, they took matters into their own hands. I'm sure they thought, well, God doesn't want us miserable. How many times have you heard that? Dave and I counsel all the time with couples. And, and inevitably, Dave, or am I right? Inevitably, when we counsel a couple who's in the middle, somebody's having an affair or, or, or there's been a, a, a adultery of some kind, inevitably, uh, we'll hear them say, but God doesn't want me miserable. You know, I really don't think she was my, God's will for my life. I'm sorry. <laughs> when you said I do, she became God's will for your life. And God's not interested. Kathy, I remember years ago, I was praying with her. She had just lost her husband. May I say this? It's a little late now. I'm in deep. Um, (laughs) 
I, I was praying with Kathy, and, and I don't even know if you remember this, and, and, and we were praying, and, and her heart was hurting so badly, and she said, Lord, you don't care about my happiness. You care about my holiness. Here's a woman who's in the middle of grieving, and she realized it wasn't her happiness that he was concerned with. It was her holiness. So many people say, God doesn't want me to be miserable. Isn't that what we think sometimes? We have a famine in our marriage, and we start to looking at Moab, justifying it, thinking God wants me to be happy. He doesn't want me to be miserable. I think that's probably where Emelech was. And so he packed up and headed to Moab. You say, Rivia, what's the big deal with Moab? Well, the Moabites were descendants of Lot. He had uh, committed a, an, uh, an incestuous relationship with his daughter, and that's where the Moabites came from. They were Israel's enemy. Uh, God had told the Israelites not to intermarry with the Canaanites, and therefore the Moabites. We read in Numbers 25 how Moab seduced Israel to follow false gods. The fact that there's no record of a tabernacle in Moab or any record of public worship tells me that there was no fear of God in Moab. In fact, I know there wasn't because they worshiped a God named Chemesh, who was the God of human sacrifice. So in order to appease this God, you had to offer a human sacrifice. So isn't it interesting that, that Amalek, who knew that, who knew all of this stuff about Moab, headed there anyway, and what kind of human sacrifice did his family endure? He died. His two sons died. You see, he would have known all about Moab. To top it off, in, in Psalm uh, 60, verse 8, God calls it his, wa his wash basin. basin. Yeah, I like the way the message paraphrases it. It says, Moab is a scrub bucket. I mop the floor with Moab. Some commentators say that Moab was how they translate uh, Psalm 60 is that, he's, that Moab was God's toilet bowl. So it was like Emelech said, come on, Naomi, let's go live in the toilet. You see, Emelech would have known what was happening in Moab, but he took his family there anyway. He made the exception to leave the place of God's provision and, and sojourn in a place forbidden by God, all because times got tough for him. How many of you have ever heard a story like that? Where, where, where somebody, let's, let's use marriage for an example, where, where, where somebody, uh, you know, their, their marriage is drying up and they're in famine. Maybe, maybe their wife isn't paying attention to them like she used to and they, they really are missing affection. Or, or, or maybe uh, the husband isn't giving her the affection and the attention she needs. Maybe he's not telling her she's beautiful enough. And then she, she has this famine in her life. She, she's feeling empty. She's feeling needy and she's feeling dry. And, and so she, she knows God. God says, don't go to Moab, that Moab is not a place for her. She, she knows what God's word says about adultery. She knows what God's word says about flirtation and sexual immorality. But you see, there's this guy at work, and, and you see, he just notices her. He just pays attention to her, and, and it's so dry over here in Bethlehem. It's so dry over here in the place of God's provision, of what God says is right, of where God says there's life. But you see, this is so attractive because it feels like abundance. He's paying attention to me. He's giving me what I don't get over here in the famine. And so, of course, God wants me happy. Because it feels good. Forget this is going to be a sacrifice that's demanded there. And it's going to bring death. See, God says, stay here for a reason. God says, my provision will be there. But when we have this sense of a drying up, the first place we head 
is Moab. It's interesting to me that the name Moab means waste or nothingness. They left the house of bread for a place of waste or nothingness. What were they thinking? In all fairness, they had planned just to sojourn there. That's the word that's used. Sojourn means to dwell for a short period of time or to temporarily dwell. They didn't mean to stay in Moab. <laughs> just 10 years later, they're still there. But, but they just were going to visit. They had heard. The Bible says they had heard. Commentators tell us that they had heard there was an abundance in Moab. And see, Bethlehem was dried up. And so they were just going to go indulge a little bit in Moab. And then they were going to head back to that place of God's provision. Isn't that what we do sometimes? We indulge a bit in the world. See, Moab is a picture of the world. It's a picture of, of, of living in disobedience. It's a picture of doing what, what, what you see right in your own eyes. They were just going to visit a little bit, and then they were going to come back, and then we find them still there 10 years later. It's interesting that another definition of sojourn, the one I like best, it means to turn away, to turn aside from the way. They went to Moab to sojourn, to turn aside from the way. You see, when he left the house of bread, the place of God's provision to go to a wasteland, he did just that. He turned aside from the way, from God's way. And any time we do that, we remove ourselves from God's protection. You see, well, Rhea, there was famine in the land. Here's the thing about famine. It eventually passes. We all have seasons of, of being dry, of being empty, but they pass. If we, if we stay in the house of bread, if we stay in the bread of his word, even when it's dry, even when it feels dry, I promise it will pass. God's hand of blessing was removed from their land. It was the graciousness of God, I believe, to force them to examine their lives and to cry out to God for restoration and for, for, for an outpouring of his blessing. I think during this time, I've heard the scripture quoted so many times. It's a scripture from 2 Chronicles that says, if my people, if my people are, who are called by my name, my people, these are not unbelievers. These are his people. And look what it says. If they, my people who are called by my name will humble themselves because it takes humility to say, God, I've gotten out of your will. It takes humility to come back from Moab. It takes humility to say, I've been doing wrong. My vision was off. I, 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 my, I, my focus was off. I lost my way. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and come and heal their land. You see, we can quote that verse, but I hear it misquoted so many times. If my people who, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and come and heal their land. What did I leave out? Turn from their wicked ways. Turn. Remember, we taught about repentance. If they'll turn from their wicked ways. Can I just tell you that if your life is in shambles, it will never improve by you turning your back on God and doing as you please. That will only lead you to Moab. You must make the decision to actually turn from your wicked ways. Turning from doing what you think is right to doing it God's way. We must start examining our lives and realize the choices we make can affect the quality of our life. They were still God's people. Notice he's still calling them his people. They were doing wicked ways, but he was still saying they were his people. Can I tell you, there's nothing you can ever do to separate you from the love of God. You are his people, but we can sure get off on the wrong foot. We can start that cycle of defeat. We can walk in some wicked ways. 
The emptiness we feel in life is not because God doesn't love us or because he's unfaithful. It's probably because of the choices that we're making. We need to examine our lives and make the changes so that our land can again flow with milk and honey. You say, well, Rhea, God's rules are rigid and not much fun. God has got to be our Lord and our master, not just our savior. Lord means he has authority. He has the final say in our life. What he says goes. Amalek knew the dangers of Moab, but I think he did think it would affect him, and we do too, but it turned out to be more pain for him, and so often we experience a dry time spiritually or a famine in our marriage or life in general, and we get deceived into believing we deserve better, and we head to Moab only to later find ourselves surrounded by people we shouldn't be surrounded with, doing ungodly things we never thought we would do, living in a place that looked like it would feed us, but instead brought us death. We shouldn't be surprised that Naomi and Emelik ended up in this destitute place. They got there one choice at a time, and so do we. They made the decision to leave the place of God's provision and seek what they needed outside God's will. We have no record of God telling Emelik to go to Moab. He made that decision on his own. Bethlehem was the place where God's people dwelt. Amalek and Naomi would have been surrounded by God's people if they had stayed in Bethlehem. But in Moab, they were foreigners. That's what the word sojourn means. It means to live as a foreigner. They removed themselves from the support of those of faith. When hard times come or dry times arrive, we must resist the temptation to leave his place of provision and head to the world because we're always going to be disappointed. The world doesn't have anything to offer you. I promise you. I promise you. It's the best thing. The place that people tell you is abundance. The thing that people tell you that you deserve to indulge in. The people, the things that you look at and people think that they're happy indulging in. I promise they have nothing to offer outside of Christ. His ways. Uh, You know, my favorite scripture is your pleasant path leads to pleasant places. Look at verse 2. The name of the man was Emelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and his two children were Malon and Chilion. Names are important. All of those names were given to us for, for a reason, and you need to pay close attention to the names in this passage. Emelech means, my God is king. <laughs> That's so interesting to me. What an interesting com- combination. When you claim God is king in your life, but you're living doing what is right in your own eyes, that's a toxic combination. You see, every time somebody would have called Emelech, they, they would have said, or what's your name? My name is my goddess king. Oh, your goddess king, but you're doing what you see fit? You're doing what's right in your own eyes? <laughs> Emelech lived in Bethlehem. I said earlier it means house of bread or house of food. But Bethlehem was part of God's promised land, a land of provision. He was an, Afro, an Ephrathite. It, it is the ancient name of Bethlehem, and it means fruitful. Emelech was part of a clan that was marked to be fruitful, not a parched, barren life. And then Judah means praise. Emelech's praise was barren. Can I tell you, we were, all, we were always in trouble when our praise was barren. So famine hits Bethlehem and God as king leaves the place of God's promise and goes to Moab instead of staying and trusting God for provision. Let me ask you a question. What would make a man leave a fruitful place of praise for a place of human Why in the world would we think the best day in a place of human sacrifice would be better than the worst day in a place of promise? I don't know, but I'm going to tell you we can't judge Emelech because we do it too. Every time we choose to go our own way instead of God's, it baffles me. Moab is symbolic of turning to the world. 
living a disobedient life, a life outside of God's will. And it's classic. When a dry spell comes for us spiritually or in life in general, instead of turning to God, sometimes we turn to the things of this world. It's like eating out of the toilet bowl. I'm feeling this pain. My life is dried up. I think I'll go get drunk as a skunk so I don't have to feel this. Or I think I'll go whatever, whatever we do. Remember, Moab was Israel's enemy. They had battled Moab off and on for years. Moab Moab had done great damage to Israel in the past. Amalek would have known that. Now he was turning to Moab for comfort. And what baffles me even more is why we do the same thing. Why do we turn to those things that we know have caused damage in the past, things that have defeated us in the past, things that have enslaved us in the past, addictions, harmful behavior, sinful actions, things that we know will enslave us. But we indulge in them anyway. Why are we tempted to visit places that we know have made others fall and have caused great pain and life and loss? Look back at verse 1. It says that, that this man had Bethlehem went to Judah to sojourn in the land of Moab. <laughs> he had no intention. I just want you to know, I don't believe for a second he had any intention of staying there or dying there. He was just going for a while for a short visit. But notice what it meant. What meant to be a small jaunt to Moab ended up being the place of his death. And not only his place of death, but his children paid the price too. When we go to Moab, can I just tell you, we take our family with us. They become affected by our decision to move away from God's best for our lives and into a land of everything that God opposes. And we never enter the place of sin expecting to die there. We think we'll just make a short visit, little office flirting, an occasional drink after work, get a glimpse of a website we know is forbidden. And before you know it, we're near death in Moab. Head back home to the house of bread. It's going to cost you more than you're willing to pay, I promise you. Sojourn, I told you, meant to dwell as a foreigner. That tells me that Emelech didn't fit there. He was a foreigner. He was supposed to be, God was supposed to be the king in his life. He was supposed to live in the house of bread, not in the place of human sacrifice. You see, that's what happens when a believer gets outside the will of God. He dwells as a foreigner. The Bible says that he remained there. That word is interesting. That phrase is interesting. It It literally means he existed there. You see, some of you are here tonight and you're just existing. <laughs> Could it be that you've left the place of God's provision to feast into the, in the world a little bit? I, I think that it's interesting that Emelech and his family fled to Moab when a famine came to Bethlehem and as a result encountered a famine of the soul that was worse than any famine of food. There's a saying that says, sin will take you further than you've ever wanted to go. It'll keep you longer than you've ever wanted to stay. And it'll cost you more than, it, than you ever wanted to pay. Amalek paid dearly for going to Moab. No one that ever goes to Moab intends to stay there. But it's always enticing when you're spiritually starving or spiritually dry. Some of you here tonight, and you might be experiencing a dry spell in your life at the moment, maybe in your spiritual life, maybe in your marriage, maybe in your relationships, and all it takes for you to hear that there's rumors of a feast going on in the world. Hearing things were better in Moab, they headed there. Grass is always greener on the other side. I think it was Irma Bombeck that said this, but they don't tell you that it's over the septic tank. That's what happened to Emelech. 
Amalek, God is king. Do you think running from the house of bread to a pagan, corrupted culture was evidence that he truly believed that God was king? God was this king, you want to say, Amalek, why don't you act like it? And yet we are called Christian, which means little Christ, and do we always act like it? Isaiah 29, 13 says, and I love this, these people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Amalek, every time he would have said his name, he was declaring God as king, and yet he wasn't acting like it. I profess to be a Christian, a little Christ, but yet do I always act like it? I, I say that I, I, I want to obey God's word, but do I always act like it, or do I give it lip service? One of the commentaries I read said, these people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That word draw near there, it's so interesting. It can mean to be afflicted. So in other words, when my people are afflicted, when trouble comes, they draw near me with their mouth, but their hearts are far from me. Do we give God lip service? We give him lip service. And then do we go living according to our own rules and doing as we please because it will always cause God to remove the rain and the harvest from our life and lead to famine in our land. The solution is not to move away and seek it someplace else. The solution is to turn back to him and seek him in repentance and begin to live like our king wants us to live. See, if God is your king in your life and you're living in the house of bread, dwelling there, your life will be full and, and pleasant. But move away from it and watch God, what death take over. Take over. We want to live a life of disobedience and rebellion, then we wonder why, like the Israelites, we are not blessed. Look at verses 3 through 5 in closing. I want you to see that Naomi's husband died, and then her two sons died. Amalek exchanged his famine for three funerals. He went searching for life, and he found death. Precept Oshan says, every choice that takes us away from God is a sojourn in the wrong direction. Amalek's choice, which he made to preserve life, ultimately brought death to himself and his two sons. No matter how desperate the situation, it's always better to face what our sovereign God has allowed and trust his hand of mercy and provision than to run from the circumstances. Scripture says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. This is our GPS. This is our direction in life. And if there's a way that seems right to me that's in opposition to this word, I need to choose not to take that route, whether it seems right or not. This is my compass. This is my GPS. If you turn over to Amos 8.1, I just want to close with that. I love it. Amos 8.1, because we're talking about a, a famine in, in Bethlehem that was a famine of food. But there's a famine that's far worse than a loss of food. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of God. I really like God's word translation. It says, the time is coming when I will send famine on the land. People will be hungry, but not for bread. They will be thirsty, but not for water. They will hunger for a message from the Lord. 
You see, a famine uh, that's worse than a famine of food or drink is a famine of the soul. A famine when the refreshing of the spirit is no longer experienced. A famine when you go to the word of God and it's dry and dead. A famine when prayer seems to be a task, a job instead of a pleasure. A famine when life seems empty and barren and there's no hope anymore. Can I tell you, head back to the house of bread. Head back to the place of provision in his presence. Head back to that place where, where he promises that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, if they make the decision to turn from their wicked ways and head back to Bethlehem, I will hear from heaven and I will come and heal their land. But we have to turn. How about you tonight? Have you been experiencing famine in your life? Are you spiritually dry? Does the word seem barren to you? Maybe your marriage is in famine right now, or maybe the love has dried up and you're hungry for attention and affection. Maybe you're experiencing famine emotionally. Maybe depression is your closest friend and that bottle of wine or liquor, it takes the edge off every night. But I'm telling you, it's Moab. What is your famine? Perhaps you've been living in Moab for quite some time and things have dried up and the world started looking appealing for you. Maybe you set out from Moab thinking you just indulged in sin for a little while and, and now you're stuck there and you don't know how to get out. Can I tell you, head back to the house of bread. He's calling you to return. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, if they pray and they seek my face, then I'll hear from heaven and come and heal their land. Megan, can I ask you to come up? And I, I just want to close. I know the Packers are playing tonight. But I just want to close with what's much more important than the Packers. <laughs> I'm telling you, I, I don't know if I, if I explained it like I saw it this week. But let me just flesh it out for you. That the whole book of Ruth is about a people who, who knew the right thing to do. They were God's people. They knew his word. But they were choosing to not live under his authority. His word didn't matter to them anymore. Does his word matter to you? Oh, I'm not saying it to be, uh, you know, super religious or to sound super spiritual or to, to make you feel like it's a works mentality. I'm telling you that his word matters. His pleasant path leads to pleasant places. That's a true, that's a true statement. You see, the, the, they were living like his word didn't matter. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. I want this, so I'm going to do it. I don't care what God says. And that led to famine to barrenness. See, some of you are barren tonight. You're going through the motions, but you're barren. You're dry. You're empty. There's no sustenance in your life. And can I tell you, turn. Turn. See, we got to preach this message. I'm so tired of dry pulpits. I'm tired of it. I don't care if you don't come back. I cannot water down the message of God to make you feel good. I don't do it in my own life. Ask my husband. We have a friend. Good life. Beautiful children. <laughs> Believers. They knew the word of God. Life is hard. 
Their life was hard. They were busy raising children, working. Their marriage got in a little famine. and She didn't give him the attention that he wanted. Kind of let herself go. He started feeling empty and bored and lonely. <laughs> and he headed to, to Moab. And in Moab, he got some attention and he felt good about himself. And <laughs> and she found out. And death came. Death came. I said to Davey, he knew God's word, Dave. <laughs> he knew God's word. What part of do not commit adultery did he not understand? That it will lead to death. There's a way that seems right to a man, but it's going to lead to death. And he didn't just take himself to Moab. He took his wife and his children to Moab too. And they experienced a death as well. better but you know what if my people because he was still God's people who are called by my name will just humble themselves and pray and begin to seek my face again and if they just turn from their wicked ways I will hear from heaven it's a promise and I will come and heal their land. My family's healed, isn't it, David? It's healed. But it was because he made the choice to turn and head back. See, some of you are here tonight and you're still in Moab calling it cool, <laughs> fun, indulging, gonna lead to death. I promise you. His pleasant path leads to pleasant places. Head back. Head back. I'm sorry if it convicts you. I'm sorry if it... I, I, I never say anything to condemn. I say it to convict. Those are two different words. Do you understand that? There's now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus in Christ Jesus. That means when I'm walking in his ways and in his word, I don't live in condemnation. There's, see, we misquote that scripture so much. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. In. In. So if you're feeling condemned, turn in in his will in his ways on his pleasant path that leads to pleasant places oh Jesus my God is king and he doesn't draw these stipulations in our life because he wants to keep us from joy and happiness draws us to protect us from the death that will come in Moab. See that? And so as Megan plays, I, I just want you to stand to your feet. I promise I'm going to let you go. I'm not going to draw this out, but Jesus.
feel this for our nation. I feel this for my own life. I'm not even talking to you. I'm preaching to myself tonight. I, I just think if my people who are called by my name will just humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn, turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear from heaven. And I absolutely, positively will come and heal their land. It's a promise with a, condi- a, convic- a, a condition. Humble yourself. Pray. Seek his face and turn. And the guarantee I'll come and heal your land. We can't expect this for a nation if we as a church are not willing to do it in our own life. It has to start with us. We have to live so differently than the world. Love so differently than the world. Walk so differently than the world that the world looks at us and says, what is it about them? But you see, we can't expect this for a nation if we as a church are not willing to start it in our own life. If my people who are called by my name. I want to do some business with God tonight. I know that in a church this size and in a group this size, that that each one of us, I know my own heart. I've got some wicked ways. I know you are far more spiritual than I am. But I got me some wicked ways that mess me up. And I just want to give us a time tonight to turn. Some of you are in Moab. Are you headed to Moab? Feel pretty justified. Right up over here. So this has something more to offer. No, it doesn't. I promise you, if you just stay his path, blessing will come. And so as Megan leads us in worship, I just really want you to do some inventory and say, Lord, is there any area of my life that I need to turn? I give you permission to put your finger on it. You see, the Bible says that we're deceived by the pride of our heart. My pride doesn't want me to see any wicked way in my life. My pride wants me to say, I'm all that in a bag of potato chips. I, I got it all together. And even if I don't believe it, I'm sure make you think it. Come on, guys. We don't have time for that. Let's humble ourselves. I want my land healed. I want abundance. And so, Father, we just thank you and we praise you that you search a man, that you know what's in a man. We're not fooling you, Lord. You're the God who sees. You are the God who sees. And I pray right now, Lord God, that you would just search us and that you would know us and that you would put your finger on anything, Lord, that you want to clean up in our lives. Help us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Speak, Lord God, we're listening. I pray that you'd bring conviction where conviction needs to come and that you would change your people, Lord God, and that you would make us more like you. Lord, we don't want to be deceived anymore. We want eyes wide open. Lord, create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us.
Do an inventory of our life, Lord God. Oh, Father, we want to hear from you. I was reading the prodigal son today, and I was struck that here is the son living in the pig pen, squandered his inheritance, everything the father had given him, he made a mockery of. But the Bible says he came to his senses and he headed back home. And while he was still a long way off, (laughs) the father saw him and he ran. It's the only place in all of scripture we see God in a hurry to welcome a prodigal son back. He wants you back from Moab. Turn.